0: Okay, Verizon says it's 6.45, so thank you for coming back, and if this is your first time with us, thank you for coming out on a weeknight. Um, for the sake of the shorter people in the room, I got taller tonight, for the sake of the shorter people who are sitting at the back of the room. Um, if you, I know Glenn was at the back door handing them out, but does. Does everyone have a handout from last night? You may have not been here, or you may have lost yours. Uh, Yeah, just raise your hand. We got a couple people with copies. Good. Thank you. Um, I guess that's all the housekeeping that I've got. But if you will pull out your sheet, you'll notice on your sheet we're using... So, let's get into the text. You notice, well, let me finish up last night. If you look at your handout, uh, we finished part one last night, uh, which is angels in the Old Testament. Obviously, there's many, many, many other portions of the Old Testament to which we could turn. We could spend all four nights just looking at angels in the Old Testament. Because again, I said it last night, there are almost 500 occurrences of the word angel in the Bible, uh, in Old Testament, New Testament. If you add in to that number, the number of times God is referred to as Lord of Hosts, the host that the Bible is speaking of, uh, Lord Sabaoth in Hebrew, Lord of Hosts. I said Lord Sabaoth because you sing that by the way when you sing a mighty fortress is our God, right? you sing the Hebrew. That's Lord of Hosts. Um, so you, you, you see that throughout the scriptures. If you look at Lord of Hosts and all the occurrences of the word malachim or angelos, 500 occurrences of angels being referenced uh, in the Old and New Testament. So we need to pay, we need to pay attention to them. Uh, we could have looked at many, many more passages from the Old Testament uh, concerning angels. Uh, you remember, perhaps I referenced the order of angels when we looked at Isaiah 6. I referenced the fact that in Isaiah 6 you see the high, you see the Lord high lifted up in the temple. Isaiah sees him high lifted up in the temple, and there's cherubim and there's seraphim. Uh, those are two orders of angels. Uh, Seraphim, we we saw the passage from Psalm 103 that says that um, the angels are flaming ones. Well, seraph actually means flaming ones. So seraphim is an order of angels. Cherubim is another order of angels. Uh, We saw them in Isaiah 6. We could have looked at uh, the cherubim that were stationed at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were banished. Uh, we could talk about the cherubim, the, 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 um, the sculptures or the metallic cherubim that are atop uh, the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the mercy seat. There's images of cherubim there. Uh, we could talk about how um, for Abraham, angels showed up for Abraham in the form of humans. Uh, you learn as you read the text that they they were angelic. Uh, The same thing, uh, we we talked briefly, we kind of ran past Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If not, I encourage you to go read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels that came there uh, came in in human forms. Uh, So angels can um, manifest in different forms. We looked at uh, that very glorious manifestation of an angel in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, I think I mentioned to you last night, if 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 you do seek to learn about angels from the Bible, as opposed to Hollywood, you will see that other than the reference to the cherubim and the seraphim, there's no other references to angels having wings. That's really more of a Hollywood thing. And some of that may come from the fact they seem to move rather quickly. So maybe that's where the concept of wings come from. Other than the way they are depicted, having wings regarding cherubim and regarding seraphim. Uh, the, the angels, like the majestic angel that you saw there in uh, Daniel 10, uh, they, um, they, they, there's no wings ever referenced. Uh, so they 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 come in different forms. They can manifest in several different ways. So again, we could keep looking in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, at the different ways that angels manifest. So I hope this is just the beginning of your study uh, concerning angels and demons. And we'll get we'll get to that later. The demons. We'll get the next two nights. We'll wrap up angels tonight because we're going to look at angels in the. New Testament. Uh, let me just pause for a moment and say this. When you go, when you go and purchase books on angels, particularly on angels, uh, there's two ways you can find, you'll find books about angels, uh, two ways they're produced. One, one way is the way I'm doing it, looking at angels in the Bible. I prefer you at least start there, preference that, uh, years ago, Billy Graham wrote a great book on angels, and he did it this way, talked about angels in the Bible. Now, the other thing that you can find, but as some people just get interested in the supernatural, is you'll find books about angels that really say very little about the Bible, but they just talk about human experiences. And while human experience is, is important, uh, you need to preference Bible and then fit your human experiences into Bible. I know in our culture today we almost preference experience. You know, what I've experienced, what I feel, what I think. And then we try to make the Bible fit into that. But I do encourage you, um, as we Christians have done for 2,000 years, start your theologizing. Start your view of life with Bible and then progress to something beyond that, like your experience. Uh, I do hope, as I said last night, as a matter of review, that part of what we accomplish this week is that uh, your worldview changes. Uh, You you will develop more of a Christian worldview uh, rather than a materialistic Western worldview. Uh, the Christian worldview sees this world animated uh, tremendously and greatly with supernatural spirit beings. The Christian worldview uh, sees this world as the shadow as the shadows, and sees the world to come, the other world, as the real world. Now, in Western society, we are thoroughgoing materialists, So you and I get confused, and we think the material world, like this podium, is the real world. The material world, from a Christian perspective, is the Shadowlands. The the world to come, the world on the other side. That's the real world. This is the Shadowlands here. So I hope I'm adjusting, we're adjusting our worldviews, because it's so easy to get captivated and captured by the culture in which we find ourselves. Uh, So I hope that you adjust your worldview. I hope that you even begin to read the Bible differently. Westerners are notorious about reading the Bible and just ignoring the supernatural parts. Now it was Thomas Jefferson who took the Gospels and he went into the Gospels, the four Gospels and took a pair of scissors and he cut out all the supernatural elements uh, pertaining to the ministry of jesus which is a great deal and he just ended up with just the ethical teachings of jesus and he published that in his day he published that or it was published right after that uh in the form of a book entitled the morals of jesus and it sold widely in the united states which tells you something that was the uh, 19th century sold widely in the united states um, Please don't do that with the Bible, either by the fact or default. Uh, don't, don't, don't subconsciously cut out all the supernatural. Uh, when you cut out the supernatural from the life of Jesus, uh, you really don't end up with a lot and you don't end up with anything unique to Jesus. There was no ethics that Jesus taught, love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. There were no ethics that Jesus taught that other Jewish rabbis before him did not teach, that you cannot find in the Hebrew Bible. It was who Jesus was and what he did that um, makes the difference with Jesus. But Americans, some Americans really are enthralled with um, just the the ethical teachings of Jesus. So that book originally was published as The Morals of Jesus. Today it's just published under the heading the Jefferson Bible. And you can still get it. Uh, Don't read the Bible like Thomas Jefferson did. Don't don't cut out the supernatural parts. Uh, That will leave a a very diminished scripture for you. So I hope that we are adjusting our worldview. We're adjusting the way that we read scripture. I mentioned last night, I'll stop reviewing, we'll start moving on. I mentioned last night that it's very appropriate that we get to meet in in this sacred space. um, Because... What we believe as Christians, what we believe worship is, is a meeting of heaven and earth. Now, I guess we should say we need to convince you first that worship is a meeting of heaven and earth. I'm not sure what all Christians are doing on Sunday mornings, but worship is a meeting of heaven and earth, and that's why historically, we've built structures like this to make sure we realized that we were participating in something sacred. Uh, the stained glass windows remind us that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, the communion of the saints is one, and it's eternal. Our fellowship with each other is eternal. There's not two churches, the one on earth and the one in heaven. We believe in the communion of the saints, and, and is one. So uh, for us, worship is a meeting of heaven and earth. These stained glass windows remind us we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, this high vaulted ceiling is, is structured this way. We've structured churches this way historically. So that when you walk in, your eyes, your mind, your heart are directed upward. You're, you're directed heavenward. So it's very appropriate that we're meeting here. The Apostle Paul says, and I didn't, I didn't put this scripture on your, on your handout. Again, there's 500 references. The Apostle Paul said that angels are present. When we worship, I uh, don't know that if you noticed that this past Sunday. I hope you did. Uh, that's poor Christian conviction. But again, you've got to start adjusting your worldview. Uh, you know, since the Enlightenment, those of us that are children of the West, Western Europe, uh, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, we are thoroughgoing materialists. And um, I want to cure some of you of that tonight and this week. Uh, like C.S. Lewis said, he wanted to re-enchant your world. And that's why C.S. Lewis always was irritated when uh, we call the world around us space or outer space. He liked to point out that the ancients, such as uh, Psalm 19, looked up and saw the heavenlies. We look up and see space. Think about the difference there. I hope that you look up and see heavenlies. I hope that you know the world is animated and uh, the spiritual reality is the greater part of reality. Part of what I'm hoping to do is just to help some of you folks get in touch with reality. Now, some of you have structured reality other than the one God is trying to structure. So I hope that you get in touch with reality. So, part two: angels in the New Testament. Um, some of these texts we'll turn to. Some I'll just reference, and you can take the sheet home. And uh, again, don't let this be the end of your study. Let this be the beginning of your study. Uh, you will notice. Or I hope you notice both with angels and with demons, and we'll get to demons. That with angels, by the way, I was going to mention to you, I I don't preference experience. Um, But just to keep you hanging with me for a couple more nights, um, I will share with you very briefly, uh, probably uh, one of the two nights we're talking about demons, uh, an experience I have had with such. And they don't come often. I've had one experience with something that was very, very, very otherworldly. So I don't don't ignore experience, but I always always put my personal experiences through the grid of Scripture. Um, We'll we'll talk about that when we get to demons. But I hope that you notice in both with angels and demons that when you turn to the New Testament, they're all over the place. The demonic during the time of Jesus seems to be an overdrive. it is. The Son of God has come to deliver the world. So when the Son of God comes to deliver the world, angels and demons have a little extra work to do. Uh, That's why we don't need to look for demons to the extent that you see them perhaps chasing Jesus around. I hope that you are a big enough threat to the kingdom of darkness that demons are chasing you around that much. But they really weren't chasing Jesus around. Uh, so you do see a great, great deal of emphasis in the gospels about both the demonic and the angelic. Uh, so I hope that you see that when you read those, the gospel accounts. Uh, for instance, I, I've got, you look at your series of, of texts now, Luke 1, uh, Gabriel shows up. You remember how Gabriel shows up in Luke chapter 1? You know, we couldn't, we couldn't do our Christmas pageants without angels, right? Angels are very prevalent in Luke chapter 1 and 2. Um, in Luke chapter 1, angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah to talk about the impending birth of the one that we will call John the Baptizer. So there's Gabriel showing up uh, to Zachariah, And then you also saw that it was Gabriel that he's named. Gabriel is named in the text. Gabriel shows up. Uh, With the announcement to the young virgin there in Nazareth that she would bear the Son of God, the deliverer, into human history. So uh, an angel shows up to do those two tasks, and you're told that that angel's name is Gabriel. Uh, There are only two angels mentioned this last night because we looked at Michael a little while last night. There are only two angels mentioned by name in the Bible. Michael, 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 Gabriel. You notice both Gabriel and Michael, they end with the letters E-L. Uh, that's a reference to God. Uh, these are special angels who serve God. Uh, we will see in Jude that Michael is referred to as an archangel. Gabriel in the Bible is not referred to as an archangel. But this is not the only literature we have from the first century when God was doing all this stuff. If you go out and read that non biblical book, uh, that book that's part of the Deuterocanonicals or the Apocrypha, the book of Tobit, you'll see that the ancient Jews considered there to be seven archangels. But the only two that get, of those seven, that get mentioned in the, in the Bible are Michael. He's referred to as archangel. And Gabriel, who's not referred to as an archangel, but he probably is one. But Gabriel shows up uh, to announce the birth of John the Baptist, to announce to the virgin that Jesus is coming. And then if you turn your sheet over, you see what I've got there is just angels in the life of Jesus. And uh, you probably know the stories well of angels in the life of Jesus. Don't run past them. They were there at his birth, that angelic choir. They were there at his birth. Uh, They were there at the temptation. If you look at Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness following his baptism, uh, angels ministered to Jesus there in the wilderness. Um, They surrounded him and strengthened him in in Gethsemane. Uh, They are there at his resurrection. Remember, they're the ones who let the women know that he is, he is not among the dead, he's among the living. Uh, they were there at the ascension. Remember when he ascends into heaven, they're there they're just, the disciples there looking upward, sort of in amazement. And the angels uh, say to them, this one who is leaving you this way will return again in, in like manner. So they were there at the ascension, uh, the Bible mentions uh, that the angels will be present with the return of jesus Um, the return will be announced with um, the 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 shout of the archangel and the blowing of the trumpet Uh, probably michael Um, because one of the things you see with michael we saw it last night michael is the one named archangel in the bible and almost every time you see michael michael taking center stage such as what we saw last night in Daniel chapter 10. Every time Michael takes center stage, uh, the people of Israel are playing a, a key role in that. And I think that'll be part of the return. So you can just think about all of those stories. You probably have heard those stories. Maybe there wasn't much of an emphasis put on the angels in those stories. But you remember all those stories from the life of Jesus. Now... I want to look at a few texts that I just think we'll find interesting that occur in the Gospels. Um, So, go ahead and turn to the first one listed there, Matthew 18.10. This is the only place in the New Testament where perhaps the concept of guardian angels Are mentioned. Now, we saw last night, and this may be more prevalent, it is in Jewish tradition. We saw last night where Persia had a certain demonic power. Michael is the angel for Israel. So maybe uh, nations have angels. We see that. Uh, But this is the only place um, in the Bible where we have a reference to guardian angels. Uh, Our culture has a lot more references to guardian angels. But here's the one place in the scripture where we have a reference to guardian angels. So if you look at Matthew 18.10, Jesus just sort of throws this out and doesn't really say much about this. Uh, But in Matthew 18.10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. I'll come back to that. Who are the little ones? For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So this has been uh, the biblical verse that's helped give rise to the concept of guardian angels. But two things you need to notice here is um, one, the little ones may mean children, because he has just recently been talking about children here as part of Matthew. But also we have reference in the New Testament where little ones are just the followers of Jesus. Uh, We need help. We need help. We're little ones so this little ones could both be children or could just be followers of of jesus Uh, for i tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven so uh, it doesn't say their one unique guardian angel is always in heaven but uh, this could be guardian angels um i never quite understood people's fascinating fascination with the concept of guardian angels and I guess it's because I, I need more than one. So I'm glad I have more than one that's taking care of me. I mean, what you see throughout the Bible is the host of angels. They're all deployed for our sake. Again, when we looked at just the sheer definition of angel, uh, if you use Malachim from the Old Testament and Angelos from the New Testament, you can sort of put those together and just say an angel by definition or servant servant messengers. So, um, yeah, we have a lot of angels taking care of us. Uh, You know, you may have a guardian angel. There's more in Christian tradition about guardian angels than than you have in the Bible. But this is the place that may have helped give rise to the concept of guardian angels. Um, I just think I take more than one angel to take care of me. But maybe you just need one. But be grateful that you know that you have more than just one. Uh, Even you notice here, angels are, are plural. So another interesting text is the next one. And again, Jesus is just throwing these out. He's not explaining these comments. That's significant. He's talking to a culture that knows about angels. He's talking to a culture that doesn't have a Western materialistic worldview. He's talking to a culture that already understands this stuff. He's speaking to a culture that highly reverences the Bible, which they, they would have what we would call the Old Testament. That's the Bible of the early Christians. They knew the Bible. So that's why, um, that's why you need to be very, very careful always. Always. In human experience. But particularly in the Bible When you make an argument from silence, you know, an argument from silence is something like Jesus never said anything about and fill in the blank. And you fill that blank in with a lot of things. Now, some people, when they're making an argument from silence and they don't realize they are are attacking one of the basic laws of logic, Anytime you hear an argument from silence or you make an argument from silence, please understand uh, that that at its core may be, a, may be a fallacious argument. You know, So if you say something like, Jesus never said blank, whatever you put in that blank, that's an argument from silence. You're trying to make a statement by saying what was not said. Because the problem with the argument from silence is sometimes things are left unsaid because they're common sense before jesus referenced angels he didn't have to give them a course in their existence they already believed in angels you know i might, if i didn't use it as an example for an argument from silence i could go my whole life probably and never say what well, i'm getting ready to say the american flag is red white and blue I might never say that because it's so obvious and you know that. You know, I might have to talk all night tonight and never say, you are seated in a church pew. <laughs> well, that's obvious. So anytime you have an argument from silence, I was trained in a classical setting where I had to take logic. Every student had to take logic. Would to God our culture would demand people take logic again. An argument from silence is always inherently fallacious. So anytime you hear somebody say, Jesus never said anything about beating your spouse, he had some opinions on it. He never had to directly talk about beating your spouse because some things were common sense to Jesus and the culture to which he spoke. Anyway, so sometimes he just is speaking about angels. He doesn't have to go into detail because he's speaking to a culture that understands angels. So uh, he mentioned those angels or the little ones. But here's something in, in Matthew twenty two thirty. 30. Every time I've ever taught this in Bible study, and if you had a chance to just um, raise issues, this would freak some of you out. And you would have a hard time sleeping tonight. But I want to help you out on it a little bit. In Matthew 22, and again, angels are not the issue. Um, Jesus is being attacked uh, by the Pharisees. They're trying to trap him into saying something that will get him in trouble with the Jewish masses. They want him just to get in trouble with something that he may say, um, you know, in, in, in speaking to them. Uh, and so they raise, you know, an issue. You know, if a man dies, and um, you know, and, and you know, we we'll, we'll get the context. Look at verse twenty-three. We got time. But look at verse twenty-three, so that you understand what he's getting ready to say about marriage. The same day, Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, "Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow." and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother, so too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all the women died, the woman, the woman died. After them the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, Well, you know, Jesus is nicer than I am. Jesus would say, don't ask me stupid questions. Jesus didn't do that. So notice how Jesus responded. But Jesus answered, then you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Um, Yeah, that was a pretty big slight to these religious leaders. For in the resurrection they, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven well usually when i do that in our context people are like oh I will, will i not have my spouse in heaven well, that's not really what he's saying um if you want to sleep better you may not want your spouse in heaven but <laughs> if you want your spouse in heaven this may help you sleep better tonight um you, you can, you'll still have your spouse in heaven if she's a believer in christ you'll still have your spouse in heaven but you won't love your spouse more than you'll love everybody else. We'll be sanctified in heaven. Our love will be perfected in heaven. So, we, you know, right now I hope that you love your spouse in a way that you don't love anybody else. So that's, that's, that's our human condition. Well, he says in heaven, we don't have that reality in heaven. So we'll be like the angels who obviously are not married. Now here's what our culture misses. And again, this is why you need to know context. You need to know history because we're so captured by our culture. The reason there will be no marriage in heaven... Now again, this may startle you, but that's okay It'll keep you awake. For, for 4,000 years, for 4,000 years, there has been one Purpose, one primary purpose for marriage. So, we don't need to be married in heaven because we will not need to procreate in heaven. Our culture has lost the whole idea that procreation has something to do with marriage. You know, um, that's been a big shift. There was no part of any Christian community anywhere until about 1919 that finally said, there might be, there might be, Another reason for getting married other than procreation. And that's probably wise. We finally got around 1919, the Lambeth Conference in the Church of England finally said, maybe there's another reason for marriage. So, and that's good. Procreation is the primary reason God created marriage. But, you know, companionship, that's, that's okay. Pleasure, that's okay too. Now, what's happened in our culture. We've lost the whole concept of procreation being tied to marriage. And marriage is just about companionship and pleasure. You following me? And that's the argument that Caligula made to marry his horse as a Roman emperor. I'm not against companionship, I'm not against pleasure, but throughout Christian and Jewish history, The primary purpose for marriage is procreation. That's why that book of common prayer uh, for the wedding ceremony, at the end of the wedding ceremony, there's a blessing. We still have the same format. We still do the blessing. Uh, We're a little less brave today. But in the book of common prayer, there were two blessings from which to choose. The primary standard, run-of-the-mill blessing included, may God bless you with children. That's gone now. Now, the book of... They weren't idiots in 1549 or for the last 4,000 years. There was another prayer of blessing at the end of a marriage that didn't mention children nor procreation because, you know, if I was marrying a 95-year-old couple and I prayed for them to have children, you'd laugh at me. We've always known that. That's why we've had two prayers of blessing in the Christian tradition. But if you weren't of an advanced age, we would do the prayer that would include a prayer for children. That's one of the things I love doing when there is a Catholic priest who would do a wedding with a Protestant. I always make sure they do the prayer blessing because um, I love to hear a Catholic priest pray that that couple will have children. That Catholic priest is the one in Christian tradition, richly planted in Christian tradition. But yeah, when you've lost all concepts that marriage has something to do with procreation in a strong way and you read this text that says you know you're going to be in heaven you're going to not have to marry in heaven yeah you get you just freak out and you start wondering about well, is my spouse going to be there but that's not what's being talked about here we won't be procreating in heaven We're no need to procre- i don't I guess i need to go into why there's no need to procreate in heaven right there's no need to procreate in That's why marriage is is not part of the heavenly realm. Marriage is part of this realm because the very first commandment in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. Jesus was a Jew. We still have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, some, Some people cannot procreate, obviously. But procreation and marriage are connected. The point of marriage is you come together... You you marry, you you marry, have sex, and have kids. Now, I know that's a novel idea in this culture, but that's been the way we've done it in Christian tradition and Jewish tradition. Anyway, so we don't have, I don't need my marriage manual in heaven. I don't need to marry anybody in heaven. Uh, We're going to love each other completely. You'll love your spouse perfectly at that point, but you'll love me perfectly, too, when you're there. We'll love each other perfectly there, but there'll be no need for procreation on that side. Um, Anyway, you can connect whatever dots you want to connect. But uh, anyway, so there will be no marriage ceremonies by magistrates or clergy in heaven, because there's no need for procreation. That's all Jesus is saying here. That's all Jesus is saying here. Okay, go back to your list of scriptures. Uh, We're going to get through some of these quicker. Luke sixteen twenty-two. that is a parable uh, where the rich man and Lazarus. It's a parable, but one of my favorite parts of the parable, and I hope you've noticed, when Lazarus dies there in Luke chapter 16, you're told at verse 22, Lazarus is taken to Abraham's bosom, heaven. By the angels. Uh, I strongly believe that when the time comes for us to pass through the valley of the shadow of death, as believers, we do pass through the valley of the shadow of death, and the angels will be accompanying us. The angels will be carrying us. Um, Some of you know uh, my wife is a hospice nurse. She has spent 25 years in that realm. Um, I've spent 38 years being present with people when they've died. My wife can probably tell you more stories than I can of the number of people, uh, as death is approaching, they sense somebody else in the room. They see the other side. They see people they haven't seen for a long time. Uh, You know, I've always um, considered a great, great gift and privilege to be present when people die. And my wife will tell you the same thing. Because not all the time, but many of, much of that time, the veil is very thin at that point between this world and the world to come. That's one of those thin places that kelps used to talk about. It's a, it's a thin place. And for me, it's a great privilege to be present particularly when someone who dies in Christ, dies in grace, dies knowing the peace of God, you, you can feel heaven and earth coming together. And uh, I, I've been told things. And, and by the way, I'm not a thoroughgoing materialist. So I don't just say, well, I guess the endorphins are kicking in. And they're having all sorts of visions. Um, you know, I know that there are people... Not all people in the medical community. There may be some people in the medical community and the of the world to give you some chemical reasons because there's so much of that occurring at the point of death. And um, I've seen people reach out to to people that they thought were there with them. Um, I could go on and on. I corner my wife sometime. She will never tell you anything about a hospice patient, but she will tell you about being with people when they die. And it can be a really beautiful, beautiful story. Uh, My wife used to wear a button. I don't think, I haven't seen it in a long time. My wife used to wear a button that said, um, hospice is not depressing. Death is, is, we're born to be able to die well. Uh, my, My Benedictine monk friends, I do have a lot of those. My Benedictine monk friends, one of the things they pray for on a daily basis is for what they call a happy death. Or a good death. Yeah, it can, it can be. That can happen. That can be part of the Christian tradition. That we live in such a way that we make the journey with Christ. We know that when the time comes, we're dying in Christ. I'm, affra- I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying because I'm a wimp when it comes to pain. My wife will tell you that. I'm not a good patient. I'm a little afraid of dying because I'm going to complicate everybody's life. afraid of death. I'm really not afraid of death, in the least. And uh, for lots of reasons, you know, lots of reasons that come from my faith. I'm not afraid of death. Um, But I look forward to being um, escorted into the fuller presence of God. We're in the presence of God now. But I look forward to being escorted into the fuller presence of God by the angels. Now, um, I know Jesus has sort of mentioned that in a parable. He mentioned it in passing. But again, he didn't have to explain that to all the Jews that were listening to him that day. Because that was part of who they were. That was something that they understood. So uh, please, take comfort of that. Abraham's bosom is just an early uh, Jewish concept. Second Timothy, I mean, Second Temple Judaism concept, which is the time of Jesus, uh, of a phrase for what we call heaven, Abraham's bosom. Because, of course, in Judaism, Abraham's got to be there. You're going to be carried to the bosom of of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham's bosom is um, is just a a euphemism for what we would call heaven. So, yeah, um, in so many ways, I commend the Christian faith to you. It'll get you through life, and it'll get you through death. So... Let's move on out of the lifetime of Jesus and some of the things that Jesus was saying, and let's uh, wrap up by looking just at some stuff from the New Testament. Um, Acts seventeen. Well, I do want go to Acts twelve. Go to Acts twelve. Um, I do want you to see Acts twelve. For whatever reason, has uh, more than one angel account in it. Acts of the apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit, Acts of the Holy of the early church. But if you look at Acts chapter 12, I want you to notice two things. One I'll just mention, the other I'll point out to you. What I've got written here before you, Acts 12 7 through 10, 10, that's Peter being freed from prison. And the text will show you he's freed by an angel. The angel leads him out into the street, and then the angel sort of vanishes. And I like to just had a conversation with Peter at that point, but you see the angel leading him out of prison. What I want you also to see in chapter 12, because this is something else angels do. If you look at the end of chapter 12 at verse 20, here's Herod. Here's Herod, um, the grandson of the Herod in Jesus' life. This is another Herod that's ruling uh, the area of the Holy Land. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded, Blastus, You don't need to know any of this. The king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration, a speech to them. Verse 22, chapter 12. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. So they really thought that was a humdinger of a speech that Herod delivered. And uh, Herod was never known. None of the Herods were ever known for being humble men. So verse 22, and the people were shouting the voice of God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down. Because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So think about that while you dinner not <laughs> So, again, angels are all over the Bible. You may have never paid attention to the death of Herod. Here's an angel participating in the death of Herod. In that same chapter, an angel freed Peter from prison. So, keep going. Uh, Acts 27, 23 through 24. uh, That's just the story of a shipwreck. And the chapter is really about a shipwreck. Paul was on that ship. But don't lose when you read it. Make sure you notice in the text there are, there's an angel that comforts Paul after the shipwreck. Um, three more texts and we're finished for the night. Look at Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. We talked a little bit about the book of Hebrews last night. Uh, that's where we got our basic definition of an angel from last night. Uh, Hebrews is an amazing book, a very, very spiritual book, as they all are. but uh, Hebrews particularly has uh, deep, deep spiritual truths. Um, here in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 23, 22 through 24, you're going to see it we're going to see a vision of heaven. It's one of my favorite visions of heaven, one of my favorite simple passages about heaven. One of the reasons it's my favorite, one of my favorites is in the 17th century, one of my heroes was Richard Baxter. Uh, I don't know whose pictures are hanging in your house, but there's a picture of Richard Baxter hanging in my study. got a lot of strange people hanging in my study. Richard Baxter is one of them. Richard Baxter is is a great, great English preacher of the uh, 1600s, 17th century. He lived through the English Civil War. He was cast out of his pulpit. For a while, he wrote more than any one human being should have ever written. Uh, His most famous book, though, that's still in print, I commend it to you. It's not difficult, not real difficult, even though it's 17th century English. He wrote a book entitled The Saint's Everlasting Rest. The Saint's Everlasting Rest is Richard Baxter's um, large book about heaven. The Saint's Everlasting Rest. Now, it's a book about heaven. In many ways, it's a book based on these few verses. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, I'll begin reading verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Again, this is the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, so this Mount Zion is not the Mount Zion that's in um, the geography of the Holy Land. This is the Mount Zion that's in heaven. Because Hebrews is teaching you, there's the real world, this is the shadow world. So what's in heaven is replicated to some extent here. That's why there's a heavenly Jerusalem, there's a heavenly Mount Zion. This is the heavenly Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's making it very simple to us here. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels, Innumerable angels. There's a bunch of them. I guess you knew that. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. I assume you also know angels know how to party better than we do because they hang out in the full presence of God. They know how to praise God better than we do. To innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. That's us. The assembly has been gathered by the firstborn. Jesus is referenced as the firstborn. Um, So this is the community of Jesus in in Mount Zion. Uh, So you see this assembly of the firstborn. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's again part of the completion of our journey. Spirits of the righteous made perfect perfect, and to Jesus, just to make sure you know he's going to be there too, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, an amazing text. We're looking at what it says about angels. There's an innumerable number of angels in festival gathering. If you want more information about that text, I commend Richard Baxter's, the Saints Everlasting Reds, all 600 pages of it if you want to go read it. Um, Anyway, and one other verse while you're here, just look on over into Hebrews 13. This is a very famous verse about angels, and many of you have probably heard this one. Uh, Just start with verse 1. Again, the, the author's not talking directly about angels, but the culture to which he's writing just knows all about angels. They live in the world. They know they live in a world populated by angels. So you notice in verse one, let brotherly love continue. So he's talking about brotherly love. He's talking about agape. He's talking about hospitality. But notice his illustration. After he says, "Let brotherly love continue," do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So, yeah, some of the people you've met have been angels. Some of the people you've shown love and hospitality and grace to have been angels. Some of the people you've helped off the street, on the street, have been angels. It's a distinct possibility. And the author of Hebrews wants you to know that. So just show hospitality to everybody, and then you don't have to worry about being inhospitable to an angel when one shows up. You see the richness of their faith in the spiritual world? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Okay, let's conclude with a very fascinating text. You probably haven't read the book of Job lately. Not Job, sorry, Jude. You probably haven't read Job either. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job. But there's only one chapter in the book of Jude. So I would encourage you to go home tonight and read the book of Jude. So look at Jude. Little chapter. It's one chapter. It occurs right before the book of Revelation. So if you get to the end of the book, end of the Bible, go west and you'll find the book of Jude. It's a little book. I commend it to you. It's only one chapter. There's something said in verse 9 that is absolutely fascinating. In verse 9, let me tell you about Jude. I just spent a month or longer with a 7 a.m. men's Bible study teaching my way through Jude. And yes, I spent like six weeks on on these 25 verses. And it's easy to do. What the book of Jude is all about, which is why nobody reads it today, is he was going to write a letter. Jude, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus. He's a half-brother of Jesus, like James. Uh, They shared Mary, but not the father. Um, so Jude, is, Jude was, knows Jesus. Jude is writing this letter to an Christ, early Christian community. He says, I was going to write to you a letter about our common salvation in Christ. He was going to write a positive letter about our faith. But then he got, he got news from that congregation that there was a lot of false teaching going on in that congregation. There was a lot of false teaching, heresy being called in that congregation that gave way that prepared people for godless living. What you believe has consequences. Um, You know, because of what they believed, they were like copulating like rabbits. And Jude Jude says, don't don't do that. You need to believe correctly and live correctly. Uh, And then what he does, he, he gives them illustrations, many illustrations. You know, it's a very short book from Jewish history that says that those who rebel against God, it never ends well for them, never ends well for them. Again, I know the reason nobody in our culture reads the book of Jude anymore. You probably haven't heard a sermon on the book of Jude in a really long time. It is just so politically incorrect on so many levels, which is why I want you to read for your homework tonight. Read the book of Jude. Anyway, in the midst of all the illustrations concerning judgment, that God brings on people who rebel against God. There's, um, there's a fascinating verse, verse 9. And he's talking about a story that you don't have in your Bible. But the story he's going to reference is in a book that we do have called First Enoch. Fascinating book. Fascinating book. You know, the early Christians and the Jewish community in the first century didn't just write what we had in the Bible and then all of a sudden quit writing. They wrote a lot of stuff. First Enoch was something that was written in the first century. First Enoch is all about angels in different forms and fashion. First Enoch. And um, again, Jude is assuming this congregation has read First Enoch. The only reason I've read First Enoch is on the Internet. Just Google early Christian. Just Google First Enoch, and you'll get it free. Nobody holds a copyright to it. It's 2,000 years old. You you can read First Enoch, and it'll blow your mind. Uh, It's kind of like a first-century version of Star Wars. It'll blow your mind if you read First Enoch. I had to read it in graduate school. Uh, But heres he's assuming this congregation read First Enoch, E-N-O-C-H. You remember who Enoch is in the Bible, by the way. The one who walked with God in the book of Genesis that was no more. Is that one reference to that? He walked with God and was no more. Well, people kept thinking about, well, wonder what he did when he went with God. Wonder what God did with him when he went with God. So all this stuff got developed about Enoch, and a lot of stuff was written about Enoch. And uh, right before the time of Jesus, one of the most popular books among Jews is the book we call First Enoch. And there's a story in First Enoch about Michael, the archangel. And there's just a passing reference to it here because, again, he's... I'll tell you what the story is, but he's assuming his readers have read it. First night, but when the archangel Michael... This is the one place he's called archangel. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil... So here's Michael fighting the devil. Let me tell you something really important because we're going to start transitioning to demons. Please, please, please... Don't ever think or assume or speak in such a way that you you, 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 betray, you betray that you believe that God and the devil are opposites. God and the devil are not opposites in biblical literature. There is no opposite to God. There is no rival to God. There is no created being that approaches God. So God and the devil are not the opposites. You got God and the devil, but the devil is just one of the demons. The opposite in biblical literature of of the devil or Satan. We'll talk about this as we get into demonology. the 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 opposite of the devil is not God in the Bible. The opposite of the devil is Michael. Michael's the head of the angels. The devil's the head of the fallen angels. So don't ever. Make people think you believe God and the devil. Or, you know, there's no struggle between God and the devil. God wins that one every time. Now what you see in Scripture is God uses the devil for lots of reasons and lots of purposes. Primarily to help mature us somewhat, spiritually. But God and the devil are not equals. Uh, The equals are Michael and Satan. Michael and the devil. Um, Because they're both over their evil host. So, verse 9 again. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but Michael simply said to the devil, The Lord rebuke you. I wonder what that's about. Well, we know because we got the book of 1 Enoch. What the story is, you do know that after Moses died, after he saw the promised land, standing on top of Mount Nebo, in that mountain range called Pisgah, according to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God buried the body of Moses, right? Shake your head, yes, you know that. You learned that in some school. Book of Deuteronomy, God married the body of Moses. Well, particularly because of other literature such as this, we wonder, why did God bury the body of Moses? Well, uh, the, uh, an assumption, you probably could come up with this. God buried the body of Moses because if the body had Mo- of Moses had been in the possession of the, of, of the Hebrew people, they would have made a shrine out of it. They would have probably made a, something grander than what well, I'm not going to say. They would make a shrine out of it. And they would become a place of worship. It would become a hindrance to idolatry. So that's why God made sure the Israelites did not get a hold of the body of Moses. Well, in First Enoch, the devil wants the body of And it makes sense. Moses was a murderer, right? Shake your head, yes, you learned that in Sunday school too. Or you learned that from the Ten Commandments with Cecil B. DeMille. (laughs) Moses was a murderer. So Satan wants the body of Moses. Well, God doesn't want the Israelites to have the body of Moses. Because they'll do weird things with it. But God doesn't want Satan to have the body of Moses either. So he dispatches Michael the archangel to contend. With um, the devil. And that's what Jesus is speaking of there. And notice how Michael the archangel contends. He doesn't have to say, he doesn't have to do anything except just simply say, Devil, the Lord rebuke you. And that was enough for Michael to defeat the devil. He didn't have to, you know, agitate and scream and yell. And he just had to say, Lord, rebuke you. So that tells us a lot. We're going to move into demons um, for the next two weeks, for the next two nights, and, and look at that part of it. And the demons are just fallen angels. If you are reading those sermons by John Wesley, um, you see he wrote a sermon on, on, on the good angels and a sermon on the fallen angels. The fallen angels are the ones that become the demons. By the way, uh, I did get rid of all those books last night, but if you don't have a book, form, and you want to read any of John Wesley's sermons, they're all online. Just Google, just Google John Wesley on fallen angels and you can read the sermon. But, uh, so we'll, we'll start looking at fallen angels tomorrow. So let's pray together. God, I give you thanks for these people here in this place that want to know more about you. They want to know you. They want their lives to be immersed in their Christian faith. They wanna have a worldview. They wanna see the world around them in a way that honors you. God, we wanna get in touch with reality. Not reality as we define it, not reality as this world around us defines it, but reality in the way you define it. Give us your grace. Continue to grow each one of us up into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen.